Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors, our regular series about disruptive innovation in Canada and around the world. I'm John Stackhouse. Today, we're listening back to our January 17th event with Dan Doktoroff, co-founder and CEO of Sidewalk Labs. His company wants to build a new neighborhood on Toronto's waterfront that will be a test lab for the city of the future. We had Dan on a previous podcast and wanted to share some of the highlights from our onstage conversation. He and I spoke in front of an audience at RBC's Waterpark Place in Toronto, just down the road from the proposed site of Sidewalk Labs' Keyside Project. Here's our conversation. So Dan, we're gonna, we've got so much to talk about t- today. We'll talk about Sidewalk Labs, about your Keyside uh, project here in uh, Toronto, and about the state of cities globally, right. and uh, what, uh, what we can do to, uh, to improve that. Um, but maybe to kick off, we can start with uh, some snappers. You've had a fantastic career. I'd love to get your brief insights on uh, four or five of the, uh, the chapters of those careers. So I'll, I'll throw those chapters okay. at you, All and right. uh, you can tell me what the, uh, what the takeaway or lesson was. We'll start with uh, investment banking. Dan started as an investment banker. So any investment bankers in the audience, you too can be a disruptor. <laughs> I was just in it for the money. No, no the really... Um, you know, what I learned, the most important lesson was how to tell a story. And I think storytelling is so important to almost anything you do. When you have to sell a company or a bond issue or an equity issue, you have to learn to tell a story. Right. Next, bidding for the Olympics. When you were at New York, you tried to get the Olympics, went to London. What was the lesson? Uh, that uh, losing, which we, we lost, like Toronto did, um, <laughs> um, losing can you can really redefine as winning, and our Olympic bid um, really created the agenda that we took into the Bloomberg administration. Working with Mike Bloomberg, single best manager empowerer I've ever seen. What did, what, what made him the single best manager? There's just the way he empowered. His view was. My, my job is to pick great people, support them with resources, have their back whenever necessary. If I do that, I will unleash incredible creativity and, that's, and loyalty, and that's exactly what happened. And that, I think, is a lesson that I've tried to take with me throughout the rest of my career. That's fantastic. Last uh, quick background question. Lesson from dealing with the world's most outspoken developer. I think you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, I think I do. I, he, he was deputy mayor of New York for ep- economic development. New when, York is famous for a uh, famous real estate guy. So uh, the one-line answer uh, is what I saw is what you get. Uh, <laughs> I, I will tell you uh, one funny story about it, which is... Um, I don't know how many of you guys have been to New York and been to Columbus Circle? So it's this area at the southwestern corner of Central Park. And the city came into possession of a effectively abandoned art museum. Um, and so this was in 2002. The city's financial position was precarious. We decided to sell off this building in a prime location. Um, but the building was complicated. It had... Um, it had design protections and other things associated with it. It was kind of a weird building. And so we only got two bidders. One was um, this small museum um, that wanted to move to a more prominent location. Um, And then the other was our 45th president. 
Um, and of course, he bid all cash, um, bid a lot more money, um, and was willing to pay right then and there to turn it into a luxury boutique, presumably gold-plated hotel. The museum had no money whatsoever, offered less money, and would actually pay when it could. So needless to say, of course, we had to pick the museum. <laughs> so you can imagine, I didn't make the call, but you can imagine sort of Trump's reaction when we told him that. It went from you know, yelling to haranguing to threatening to eventually recognizing he's going to have to deal with us on other stuff, whimpering and hanging up. <laughs> I did not hear from him after that for 18 months until the day after The Apprentice debuted on NBC. That day I got a call from him. The only purpose of the call was to tell me the ratings of The Apprentice. <laughs> and then he called every week for the next three weeks to tell me the ratings of The Apprentice. So as I said, what I saw is what you get. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, Hardly. Let's, uh, let's, let's turn to Sidewalk Labs. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Explain it. Sure. Look, we'd like to describe ourselves as an urban innovation company, but we think the best way to innovate broadly and have the kind of impact that we'd like to have at what we think is a historic moment in time when there are a set of technologies that are now available that are converging, um, all sort of digitally based, that we believe can fundamentally bend the curve on quality of life, almost every quality of life metric in cities. And, but the best way we think to do it is to actually demonstrate how it can be done in a place. And ideally, in our view, a place where there's not a lot there to begin with, because your capacity to innovate is inversely correlated with the number of people, um, infrastructure, and other things that are there. So, you know, we conclude we actually wanted to help to build a place working in partnership with the local governments um, that would be able to demonstrate what life in the 21st century can be like, thoughtfully enabled by cutting edge technology when that is integrated into great urban design. That's fundamentally what we're about. So we're here to talk about disruption. What is it about cities that needs disrupting? It's not so much that cities need disrupting. Um, and so I'm, uh, yeah, I, I kind of recoil at the notion of the smart city, to be perfectly honest, because I actually think cities are pretty smart. Um, you know, people make of cities, you know, what they want to and can, and yes, there are processes. See, I'm learning to be truly Canadian and say process rather than process. Um, so just by the way, Dan, Process is not just a pronunciation, it's a way of life. I, that's what I've assumed. <laughs> I've also been taking lessons on how to say Toronto. Toronto, yeah. <laughs> you know, so I'm getting better. Um, in, in any event, um, I think cities are generally smart, but it doesn't mean they can't be better. And I said, we're at this moment in time when there's a set of technologies that we think can make them better. Um, we've 
I, I like to call this sort of the fourth urban technology revolution that we think we're sort of just beginning right now. And the three previous ones, at least in modern times, would be driven by the steam engine in the early part of the 19th century um, that enabled through trains, you know, goods to come and people to come to cities, enabled the industrialization of cities. In the latter part of the 19th century, it was the electric grid, which made cities 24 hour, uh, made them vertical, made them easier to get around with subways and L's, et cetera. Uh, ultimately, obviously, enabled modern communication. And then the third one was the automobile in the early part of the 20th century. We think there's one now, mm -hmm. um, and it offers incredible opportunity. So, you know, this is really the moment to explore, I think, what is possible. Why not just let it happen organically is if you believe as we do, and we've been studying this now for two years, that you can fundamentally improve life meaningfully, you also have to recognize that getting things done in cities is hard mm. um, for lots of reasons, some good, some not so good, and that having a place that demonstrates that can serve as a model that other cities can look to for inspiration, specific ideas, we think can usher in this area era faster. So let, let's talk a bit more about how this will play out in Keyside. That's the, the, the name of the project uh, on, on, on the waterfront here. But first, maybe you can tell us how you came to select Toronto. You, you looked at 50 or more possible locations around the world. Uh, places we, 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 lo we looked all over the world, uh, mostly in the developed world. Uh, I think we looked at 51 different metropolitan areas um, in, the, in North America alone. We looked at hundreds of sites. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, we thought Toronto was incredibly exciting for a number of reasons. One is, is the diversity of Toronto. Uh, I always used to say that New York was the most uh, diverse city in the world. I actually didn't know that Toronto is least large city in the world. Um, it's also, I think, got sort of this incredible aspiration for inclusivity. Mm. Um, and that inclusivity um, is being challenged now, um, in part because Toronto, Toronto has been so open. Um, and so people are flooding here, you know, in the greater Toronto area, you know, 80, 100,000 or more a year, which is putting all sorts of pressure on the city from an affordability perspective on the transit and transportation networks. That is having the impact of um, pushing middle income, lower middle, lower income people further and further out, denying them access to opportunity. So it struck us from outside that there's also this gap between aspirations for inclusivity and sort of the growing reality, which would make people here more open to new approaches and new ideas. You add on top of that um, the fact that um, there's a really growing tech cluster here um, that this is a place uh, where we've seen all sorts of interesting urban innovation. It was not lost on us that Toronto was the place that, to which Jane Jacobs fled from New York. 
Um, and then, you know, in Waterfront Toronto, we had a great partner who's been practicing at developing along the waterfront for 15 years, who itself represents the three levels of government, so that alignment is important. And then on the waterfront, there's an incredible site. So you took all those things together, and we really thought this was the best place in the world to do this. I've said this before, I'll say it again, you know, if Amazon sees what we see here, it wouldn't even be a close call, uh, but we're incredibly thrilled. Right, so the point of Keysight is to, to create a laboratory. Right. Try, try things out uh, with real people doing real things, li living real lives, and uh, harvest the data, learn, learn from that. Maybe we can talk a bit about some of the things you, you want to study. Uh, you mentioned climate uh, and, uh, and the carbon challenge of cities. What sort of ideas, what sorts of ideas have you been hearing that sort of spark your interest of what could be done at Keysight to lower a carbon f footprint of, a, of an urban environment? Well, this is a unique site, um, among other things, because what you have um, with ash bridges is producing a lot of waste heat, and at the same time, because of the lake, you have the potential for relatively inexpensive um, deep water cooling. The combination of them, what we think, can produce sort of the backbone of a um, energy system that would have really dramatically positive um, environmental um, qualities. So we're, that's one example. There are lots of other components to it. it. Won't be one thing, it'll be a set of things. So we have a set of hypotheses at this point about what's possible and now we're just in the process of thinking through them, doing more analysis on them. Um, but I think the early indications are is that from an environmental perspective, this place could be quite remarkable, actually. Mobility. So the, the core of our thinking about mobility is at the district. Um, at, at Sidewalk Toronto would ultimately be all autonomous vehicles um, within the district. And the district, obviously, the size of it will be to be determined as we move forward. But you know, when you think about autonomous vehicles or self-driving cars, um, and you assume them in a reasonably controlled environment, um, so many things begin to change. You know, I talked about the automobile being the third urban technology revolution. So much of what we now understand as urban life has changed because of the automobile. You know, we had to accommodate parking. Uh, we had to separate roadways because we now suddenly had these very dangerous things in our midst, and that took lots of space. So just as one example of what eliminating the traditional automobile does is it enables you to buy back an enormous amount of space. Uh, most cities you know, in North America, somewhere between 30 and 40%, the space is taken up by separate roadways mm -hmm. and parking. If you can reclaim that, you can double the amount of public open space um, in a place, putting everybody within a very short walk, for example, of a park. We talk about the integration of smart urban design and technology. That's a classic example of that. Well, you know what happens when everybody is really close to a park um, then maybe their apartments to achieve the same sort of quality of life don't need to be exactly the same number of square foot. 
when you think about mobility and you think about autonomous mobility, you think about freight and freight delivery. Imagine, for example, if freight could be delivered underground, the cost of freight delivery actually goes down dramatically when it's autonomous. Um, maybe what you don't need to do is store the same amount of stuff in your home or in your apartment which also can potentially reduce the cost of housing without sacrificing quality of life. We've actually calculated, and these are very preliminary, that if you begin to go to a different approach to mobility that within the district would include kind of on-demand autonomous vehicles, um, that would include lots more bike sharing, more walking in a much denser um, mixed-use environment, where to get out, you relied more on shared services like Zipcar or shuttles, as well as mass transit, that for the average family, you could lower the cost of mobility by maybe $6,000 a year, which is huge. <clears throat> so these are the types of things that we're exploring right now. How will you innovate, harvest, and study data while at the same time protect people's uh, privacy? Well, the first thing I should say is we view this issue of privacy and data protection as fundamental to actually doing anything here. If we can't satisfy people on that dimension, then we will not be successful. And as a result, we've already begun the process of engaging with privacy experts, with um, with our government partners at Waterfront Toronto, and that will be expanded to others, um, consulting people from all over the world about this. Um, and you know, we've already articulated a couple of principles that we will live by. One is that privacy and privacy protections will be built into um, the products that we actually deploy or use here. A second is, is that we're not going to use data for commercial purposes. Data will be used to improve quality of life. A third is that the processes that we actually use to develop those po policies will be open and collaborative. And so that over the course of this year, as we're also developing the plan for the place or the idea for the place, um, we'll be engaging in, a, in the proce process to actually, um, to actually develop those privacy uh, and data rules as well. Um, so it, it's absolutely fundamental. Um, and you know, since I don't think the purpose is just to collect data to monetize it, I know it's not at all. Um, I think we're going to be able to work with people to come up with something that makes sense. Now, it's also, we, we talked for a second about setting a global example. Mm -hmm. We all know that this issue of you know, data and privacy, particularly in public space, is an issue that we're all wrestling with every day. One of the great opportunities we think here is to do that here in a really disciplined, thoughtful way, again, that may set a global standard. Another question from Facebook. Are, are there only renters in the district? No, we don't know. For, we don't know. I think it'll probably be a combination of ownership and rental, but we don't, we don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Another, another good Facebook question. Toronto, as you, you, you know, is a city of neighborhoods, and each is fairly distinct uh, and uh, sort of has grown up organically. How do you ensure that a neighborhood, uh, a truly organic neighborhood, emerges in Keyside when you're trying to literally engineer 
uh, the, uh, the district. I think it goes back to this notion when we talk about organic. What organic means is that it changes as people's interest and taste and technologies change. That it is created in a spirit of openness that people can actually add to it just like they would in any traditional urban environment. Um, so that means the data itself has to be open and available to people mm. so that they can use it. It means that the processes have to be clear and um, ultimately people have the say in their environment that gives them the ability to change it. All we're doing is trying to create sort of said the, the platform in order for that to actually happen. Another good question here from Facebook on translating learnings. A bit, bit early probably to have a, a conclusive statement on this, but what's your thinking in terms of how you will translate the learnings from Keyside to, uh, to the greater city or to cities elsewhere? Well, I think the first thing is, is that we'll be quite open about what we are doing. Um, we already started that. Um, for anyone who's interested in learning a little bit more about some of our original ideas, um, we posted the 200-page response to Waterfront Toronto's RFP online, again, at sidewalktoronto.ca. Um, not, not suggesting you should read it all in detail, uh, but um, it will give you a sense for at least some of the original ideas that existed at the time that we submitted the RFP response. Um, so, you know, that I think is the first thing, is to be open about what we're thinking about. Um, the second, I think, is as we do it, um, to very accurately measure the impacts. Um, you know, one of the real goals for us in doing this is what we call replicability. We want, whether in this, in the GTA or beyond, um, what we do to be seen and hopefully other places to learn from them. In order to do that, you have to be able to document um, what you're doing, the successes, and by the way, the failures. Um, and so I think you'll see a regime of documenting kind of how things are going in a way that's probably not very common for kind of normal place building. Uh, I, I've always believed that the, one of the great power of this idea is that other people will see it and in their own way adapt it, copy elements of it. I was, I was struck, you know, when I was deputy mayor, one of the projects that uh, I was particularly proud to play a role in um, was the saving of the high line. Uh, and I don't know how many of you guys have been to New York and, and been on the High Line, um, but arguably it is sort of the most successful urban park that's been done in decades. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of cool how the Bentway actually borrows from it on some way and some levels. In any event, um, we opened it up in 2008. Within one year um, after it opening up, uh, and um, it clearly was a success. There were 36 high lines under development around the world. Um, cities copy other cities. Um, the dynamism that exists among cities looking to learn from each other, competing with each other, sharing with each other is so fabulous that if we can demonstrate kind of impact here, mm the word will spread. What's your, uh, what's your biggest worry? 
I worry about everything. Uh, no, it's just, look, at the end of the day, um, getting anything big done in a complex urban environment is hard. And I said, I respect that. Um, I live through it. If, and until you've actually um, played the role in rebuilding, for example, the World Trade Center site, um, which I did for six years, you know, you um, can't really appreciate just how difficult everything is and how it's, but through listening and reflecting and getting people engaged in the process, process that you actually, <laughs> it's not quite there yet. Um, you, uh, uh, you're able to get things done, but you say, what's the biggest, the biggest risk is just, it's complicated, there's lots of parties, and we're not smart enough um, to figure out how to work through them all. I'm optimistic we are, we've built an incredible team. You know, I, I, we've literally looked at every attempt to build a smart city or innovation district over the last 50 years, and, there isn't one that actually can stand as a model of success. Mm -hmm. And I think to a large extent, um, the reason they didn't is they weren't able to cross what we call the urbanist technologist divide. Um, you know, urbanist people who think about cities, plan cities, build cities, generally do not understand, speak a completely different language from the technologist. And technologists are usually not sensitive enough in any way to the real world realities of a complex urban environment. We have built a team right from the very beginning that consists of both, of people, by the way, on each side who are predisposed to understand the other perspective. And so I think we're building the right kind of team with the right kind of discipline, with the right sensitivities to actually be successful. Uh, but you never know until you do it. And we also think, you know, I mentioned humility a second ago, look, we're not from Toronto. There's a lot to learn. Um, hopefully we're coming up, but you know, we don't have the intuitive understanding of how people feel and think here. And so we have to get up that curve much more quickly. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Today's show was produced by Peter Henderson. You can reach us at rbcdisruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag rbcdisruptors. I'm John Stackhouse from RBC. Thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.